Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. It's time for our annual Second Opinions episode where contributors give their thoughts on previously covered games. This time we're starting with Christy uncovering Forbidden Desert. Next, Luke constructs his thoughts on Sorcerer City. I brew up my opinions about Chai, while Mason gives his second opinions on just one. And last but certainly not least, Hanama Koji earns the favor of a second look from Meeple Lady. As you may know, Matt Leacock's Pandemic franchise has been very successful over the years, spawning a number of standalone games inspired by Pandemic. He also has a lesser-known series of cooperative games with related mechanisms, starting with Forbidden Island in 2010 and continuing with Forbidden Desert in 2013. In my opinion, Forbidden Desert is one of the few times that the sequel to anything has surpassed the original. In current times, when the theme of Pandemic itself might be a bit much to take, Forbidden Desert is a great alternative. You can also listen to Sarah's review in episode 49. The premise of Forbidden Desert is that you and your friends are adventurers on a mission to excavate an ancient desert city to uncover a flying machine. A sandstorm causes your helicopter to make a crash landing. You must try to escape the heat and ongoing sandstorms by locating parts of the airship, even though some of them might be buried in sand. Once you are able to assemble the airship, your party must reconvene at a launch pad in order to depart. No problem, right? Here are some of the things that will get in your way. Forbidden Desert is played on a 5x5 grid of movable desert tiles. All the tiles start face down, so you will have to flip them over in order to explore the territory. Some tiles start the game with sand on them, which has to be removed before you can flip the tile. One of the tiles in the grid is missing, and that open space is where the sandstorm is located. A player turn consists of four actions, which are mostly going to be things like moving, removing sand, and flipping tiles. Then there is a sandstorm phase in which you draw cards and move the storm accordingly. Any tiles moved will receive sand, and if a tile has two or more sand on it, it becomes blocked and anyone on that tile is temporarily buried until the sand is removed. Running out of sand pieces is one of the ways in which you can lose the game. So even though adding sand is bad, it's still a resource to be managed as you play. You can also draw cards that will advance you on a track that determines how many cards you have to draw each turn. Water is a precious resource in Forbidden Desert. Each player starts with their own canteen. Amounts vary according to your special ability. Each player has a role that gives them a special ability such as moving across blocked sand, moving diagonally, dispensing water, removing extra sand, and so on. The Sandstorm deck contains four cards called Sunbeats Down that force you to drink water unless you are safe in a tunnel or under a solar shield. If anyone runs out of water and then subsequently needs to drink from an empty canteen, all players lose the game. You might want to have real glasses of water on hand because people can actually get thirsty playing this game. As you excavate tiles, you uncover clues to the location of the parts of the airship. Each part has two tiles that determine its location, one that tells you the row and another that tells you the column. Once you've flipped both of these tiles, you can determine where the part is located. Then you have to go there, make sure that tile is free of sand, flip it if needed, and pick up the part. It's possible to plan ahead to future turns when figuring out how to pick up the parts, but the sandstorm can move tiles and add sand to your route. So it's not always guaranteed that things will work out the way you hope. Not every tile has a clue, 
Some tiles give you special items to use, and there are a couple of wells where you can get water if you're on the tile when it's flipped. I find Forbidden Desert to be thematic and immersive. The actions are simple, but you have to use resources wisely in order to win. Water is tight, actions are tight, and the sand can be difficult no matter where it's going. Obviously, it's an issue if the sand is landing right in your path, but it can also create a problem if too much sand piles up on areas of the board that you don't need to visit anymore, because it'll just sit there and then you'll eventually run out of sand. Two quick critiques. The sandstorm movement can be counterintuitive as to whether the arrows on the cards mean that the storm itself is moving or if tiles are supposed to move. It's the latter, but I've played entire games the other way around, and it's playable either way as long as you're consistent. The other downside is that one of the roles, the meteorologist, is kind of a bummer to play because the special ability involves negating sandstorm cards. So that person's turn can easily become take zero actions in order to draw fewer sandstorm cards, and they don't get to do anything. I just prefer not to use that one. Forbidden Desert is great at any player count from 1 to 4. It goes up to 5, but that gets to be a long time between turns, so I would stick to 4 or fewer. Forbidden Desert is published by GameRight. The art is by C.B. Kanga and Tyler Edlin. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie, where I've posted a photo of my latest two-player game where we lost by getting buried in sand. Thanks for listening. I feel like I need to start this segment with a disclaimer. I don't like real-time board games. First and foremost, they just don't deliver what I personally am looking for. When I play a board game, I'm looking to relax with some friends for some conversation and light competition. I'm virtually never looking for any of the buzzwords used to describe real-time games, like tense or fast-paced or frantic. None of that appeals to me in this setting. Second, though, is that I just don't think real-time games really work most of the time. In a lot of cases, the real-time element is slapped onto a set of mechanisms that would otherwise be outright boring or would just end up being completely broken if people were given the time to think about them. After playing a few games, I can say with fair confidence that Scott Caputo's Sorcerer City neither breaks this mold nor improves on it in any way. For a full, and frankly phenomenal, breakdown of Sorcerer City's gameplay, check out Ruel's review in episode 83 of the 5x. I won't be going into as much detail here, but I will break down the basics. The primary thrust of Sorcerer City is to customize your personal deck of district tiles to prepare for five real-time tile placement rounds, where you'll be drawing tiles randomly and attempting to build blocks of different colors. Each color represents a different resource, money, influence, prestige, and magic, which will be calculated at the end of each real-time phase to grant players rewards and the ability to buy new tiles to add to their deck. Every round, a new monster will also be added to everyone's deck, typically with some sort of negative effect when that monster is drawn during a real-time round. Players have to tailor their stack of tiles not only to facilitate placement for resources, but to account for the monster effects that might appear to screw things up. The game is split, effectively, into two phases, the real-time build phase and the score phase where everyone gets rewards and buys stuff. And this, in truth, is the first place Sorcerer City falls down for me. In a normal difficulty game, each real-time round lasts two minutes. The box lists a playtime of 45 to 60 minutes, which we found to be mostly accurate, but can be a little shorter with fewer or more experienced players. My wife and I played a two-player game in a little over half an hour, for example. But when you do the math, you realize that out of a 45-minute game, only 10 minutes of that is spent, well, actually playing. After each two-minute frenzy, the game slows to a crawl while players calculate rewards, read up on monsters, and decide which new tiles to buy. 
the majority of the game is spent on bookkeeping rather than actual gameplay. Which comes to my second gripe. The tile placement phases aren't exciting or interesting enough to balance out the time spent cooking the books. The tiles themselves are honestly fairly boring, primarily just arrangements of colored quadrants and the occasional symbology. While this definitely has the positive effect of making the tiles easily recognizable during real-time phases, where quick thinking is paramount, it has the negative effect of giving the game a fairly boring table presence. Unfortunately, the background artwork on the tiles is so subtle, it just fades away, and after you've finished a round of ostensibly building a city district, you're left with a haphazard arrangement of tiles that are just blocks of color. My favorite tile-laying games leave you feeling like you've built something when the game is over. A Carcassonne board feels like a funhouse mirror French countryside. A Cuzco board builds up layers of terraced farms and towns in a fantastic 3D landscape. Not only does Sorcerer City give you none of that, everything you do build just gets torn down every round. My last gripe is probably rooted more in how real-time games get reviewed than their actual gameplay. A common refrain among people who love real-time games is that they bypass analysis paralysis in a way that allows players who suffer from AP to have fun without bogging things down. This is, in my experience, just plain false, and that falsehood holds true with Sorcerer City as well. Players who AP a lot do so because they calculate and overthink. My wife, while I wouldn't describe her with the vitriol many assigned to AP, is a fairly slow and deliberate player, which sometimes manifests in long, overly considered turns. Her experience with Sorcerer City was not that it bypassed her paralysis, but rather made her feel even more flustered and frustrated that she couldn't finish her districts in time. She had a similar experience with Galaxy Trucker. I got this copy of Sorcerer City partially because reviews I read said that it was good for players with AP and who don't necessarily like real-time games, and as it turns out, it's the same as all the rest. I preface this review with my dislike for real-time board games originally to help listeners take my review with a grain of salt. After all, Ruel enjoyed Sorcerer City and gave it a positive review, so there are obviously people out there who like it. But it fell very flat for me and everyone I've played it with, and I'm not even sure people who like real-time games would enjoy it. The real-time elements only make up about a quarter or less of the playtime, and the rest of the game is just a series of reward and market mechanisms found in a lot of other, better, more interesting games. For the first time on the 5 by, I can't recommend the game I'm reviewing. I think Druid City and Skybound missed the mark on this one. Sorcerer City just isn't that great, and I think your gaming money and time are better spent elsewhere. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi, my name is Mike, and I have a thing for drinking games. Wait, that didn't come out right. What I mean is, I clearly have a thing for games about beverages. From Vinos to Viticulture, to the Viva Java games, to the Brewcrafters series, many of which I've reviewed here on the podcast. Don't ask me why, but if it's a game about something you can drink, for some reason I seem to be drawn to it. Which is probably why I backed Chai. Well, that, plus the sliding ingredients market intrigued me. Here, why don't I start from the top? Chai was first covered by Ruel in episode 93 and is a 2018, well, more like a 2019-2020 before we got it game from Dan and Connie Kazmaier and published by their publishing company Steeped Games. I'm going to gloss right by that pun and leave it for Patrick. In Chai, we are running tea houses, except each tea house, I guess, kind of specializes in a different type of tea, be it green tea, ruibos, oolong, black tea, or white tea. Each player is competing to satisfy customers from a buy row by making them the tea they want. 
But while each tea house has its corresponding deck of customers, anyone can serve tea to anyone else, so long as they have the ingredients and one coin to give the player who owns the tea house of the tea type that the customer wants. So, if for instance I'm playing as the green tea house, and want to serve some tea to someone who wants oolong, then as long as I have the ingredients and can pay my son one coin to take his oolong marker, I'm good. Okay, that was long. So how do we get the ingredients? Well, each turn the player may take one of three actions. They can go to the pantry and choose three items for free. These are things like vanilla, honey, sugar, spices, and milk. Then there's the market. The market is the slidey thing I mentioned earlier and where you buy most of your ingredients from. Ingredients like mint, jasmine, ginger, and various fruits and flowers. The moment you go to the market, you get three coins, then you must spend at least one. All the ingredients are on a sliding scale from one to three coins. You can buy whatever you can afford. But when you buy an ingredient, you also get any matching ingredient orthogonally adjacent if it's the same type. This is the interesting mechanism that caught my attention. This tied with how one can buy as much as they can afford means you can set up some pretty nice combos for yourself. But as you have to pay the highest cost of any connecting tiles, it also means if someone before you connects the ingredient you need, pushing it into a higher bracket than you can afford, well, that's not ideal. The final action you can take on your turn is to reserve a customer. That takes them out of the community biro and brings them to your specific tea house so that at a later time, only you can fill that order. Frankly, reserving a card has always seemed a waste to me. It's sort of a dead action. Sure, I could reserve a card, or I could take the market action and get closer to finishing it. To balance this, the game adds ability cards that you can activate when you reserve a card. These let you break minor rules in the game to your benefit. No matter what action you took, at the end of the round you can fulfill an order, placing the ingredients in one of the cups, and collecting your randomly assigned tip. Then you bring that customer down into your scoring pile. Once the number of customers equal to the number of players is served, the round is over, a few things reset, and you move to the next round. At the end of the game, the player with the most points from the customer served, added with leftover money, wins. So, what did I like about Chai? Well, the art is amazing. It is bright, colorful, and most of all very inclusive. Not just for gender and race, but also for body types, which is fantastic to see. A top-notch job there. I also really like that you get three coins just for going to the market versus wasting a turn going to the bank. Is that real life? No, but then customers usually aren't worth points in real life either, so let it go. I've also never played Candy Crush and its ilk, so I really enjoyed the sliding market. Chai also comes with a solo variant that I found very enjoyable, consisting of mixing two decks and trying to get as many points as you can with a limited number of actions. It's fast and easy to maintain. Frankly, the whole game is fast, even multiplayer, which I appreciated. But as always, I do have a few niggles. First of all is the fact that the first player can always complete a customer right off the bat by starting with the customer who just wants three pantry items in their tea. It's become the standard starting move in this house, and it gets tiring. Second, as stated before, reserving a card and using the special abilities feels a little clunky to us, doubly so in playing solo. Yes, we occasionally used it when just the right opportunity came up, but it generally felt a little off. But the time you really need to use a special ability is when items clump that no one needs, which seems to happen with some regularity. There's an ability that will help you with that, but it doesn't always come up. So are you really going to pay 2-3 to three coins to get all those ginger out of the way when no customers want ginger? That's throwing away points, as money is points. Speaking of, the uneven tips also graded on us as it seemed inevitable that one player regularly lucked out getting the big tips over and over again. I know, I know, that sounds like nitpicking, and honestly, it is. Maybe if I got to play more than just solo, two-player, and three-player, these things would react differently. 
Maybe if I got to play with friends versus family, the game would have played out differently. But this is 2020, so we won't know for a while. All that said, my wife and son really enjoyed Chai despite independently bringing up some of the above issues. So Chai stays in our collection for future plays, and we're all looking forward to it. So that's Chai. If you have any further questions or comments about it, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Until next time, stay safe and wear a mask. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Just One. This is one of our Second Opinions episodes, and Just One was previously covered by our guest contributor Nicole back in episode 56. Every few years, a big new family game comes out that gets massively hyped and hugely popular. Everyone talks about it. It's the most played game on the planet for a couple of months. Everybody buys it. Everybody gives it as gifts to their cousins and nieces and nephews. We all take it to family gatherings and try to get people who hate games to play it. You extol its virtues at work to the annoyance of your coworkers, and then it trickles down to non-board game people and gets multiple IP-themed versions. It's available at Walgreens, and then it's featured by one of those obnoxious families with 2 million YouTube followers. And so the critical tide turns against it, and serious gamers start saying, well, I never liked it to begin with, and then you can't even get rid of a copy of it for $5 at a convention bring and buy. But sometimes the huge party game is so simple, so clean, and so classic that you can't believe it didn't already exist. Sometimes the huge party game really is the new Pictionary or Outburst or Password. Now, my previous opinion was that Taboo was probably the best party word game of all time, and let me tell you, I've played a lot of party word games. Taboo is about what you can't say, and the restriction is what makes that game click. Password is, of course, the more subdued incarnation of guess the word but with limitations, and it's so geniusly, perfectly excellent that it was on TV every day in first run for almost 30 years and has continued in rerun for 30 more. Password is fun to watch because you, the viewer, yell, that's a terrible clue at the television. Unlike Wheel or Jeopardy, you, the viewer, are not being tested. You already know the answer, except in Password Plus and Super Password, but that's a different discussion. The excitement comes in Password from the tension of waiting to see if the non-celebrity contestant will guess correctly. Every single time, every show, every question, there's a hush, current of electric anticipation, and then a release, either a disappointed sigh or a smattering of applause if they've gotten it right. And this isn't just why Password is good. This is why Just One is good, and this is why Just One is now a forever title. The 2019 Spiel des Jahres winner from designers Ludovic Rowdy and Bruno Sauter, yes, they have the same first names as different French game designers who also have games published through repos, but they aren't them. I know that's very confusing, but don't worry about it. Just One plays 3 to 7, but with two sets, you can easily play many more. The upcoming New Words standalone expansion box apparently has nine easels and pens, but I think you could probably play with up to 12 people if most of them had played before. Now, more than that might start getting difficult logistically just to see everyone else's answers. So Just One is like Password in the sense that one person must guess a word based on a single clue word. The difference is you've all got other players at the table who are writing those clue words on their hidden plastic easels. Everyone except for the person guessing compares words and any matching words are all put face down. Then the person guessing looks at the remaining words and makes their guess based on them. So it's challenging but not complex. It's cooperative, so everyone is motivated to pick words that are close to the perfect clue but not too perfect. The emergence in Just One, which y'all know I love, lies in the decision of what word to write on your easel. Now, you probably don't want to pick the most obvious word, but you don't want to get so far from the mark that it doesn't make any sense, especially playing with family or close friends. You can sort of meta other people's answers. So, does my eight-year-old cousin know who Karloff is? The clue is Frankenstein. Is my dad going to write young? Is grandma going to write movie or monster? 
Should I just pick one of those in case no one else does? Should I put Universal? Does anyone else at the table even know that those movies are Universal Studio monster movies? And all this goes through your head every single round. And every single round, you have to make this cascade of these micro decisions about what to write on your little easel. Your success hinges on your ability to thread the needle of a single word clue that's good enough, but not so good that everyone else picked it too. Even if you bomb hard as a group, though, it's fun and can be pretty hilarious. Trying to guess circus when the only word left is tent because the other clues canceled each other out is ridiculous enough to take the sting out of losing a point. So you could play just one with pens and paper and thrifted cards, but it's only $20 and the easels and dry erase markers make it so much more fun to play. It's physically accessible for 6-year-olds who write big and 91-year-olds with shaky penmanship. We played last Christmas as a mixed group from second graders to great-grandmothers and everyone loved it. My big plan for this year was to tell you to buy this now so you could play it over the holidays with your family, but please don't get together with your family this year. The pandemic has only gotten worse, at least here in America, and being together isn't worth risking the lives of the people that you love. Just one is easy to play over Zoom, though, so nuke yourself in Mrs. Shutterwain's Turkey Grand Slam dinner and log on remotely for all of your holiday cheer. Stay safe and be smart, and hopefully I'll get to see you at a convention after we've all been vaccinated. So who should play just one? Everyone you've ever met. Your grandparents, your grandkids, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, strangers you find on the street. Not just anyone who likes games, but literally any person capable of basic reading and writing comprehension will probably enjoy Just One, even if they say they don't like games. I give Just One 5 out of 7 excellent clues because your brother and sister-in-law both wrote Baby when the clue was dull, and frankly, they should have both known better. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and happy holidays. There was a time in my life when two-player games sat unplayed on my shelves. But since 2020, the year that none of us could have ever predicted, many of those games have since hit the gaming table. Hanami Koji, first reviewed by Ruth in episode 18, is one of those delightful two-player games that have come into the rotation. Designed by Kota Nakayama and artwork by Major Lee and Mishiro Misaki, Hanamakoji is an abstract area majority card game that features gorgeous and colorful Japanese-style geisha artwork. One geisha is holding an umbrella, one playing a flute, one pouring tea. Each scene is unique in activity and color. This version I have is published by Emperor S4, but this game is now being published by Deepwater Games. This small portable box, which is about the size of a small paperback, includes 7 geisha cards, 21 item cards, cardboard victory markers, and cardboard action tokens, 4 for each player. Though the game comes with few components, it packs a big punch with its tension-filled back-and-forth gameplay, and you don't need a lot of table space to play this game, which is good these days as many game tables have evolved into multi-purpose spaces within the household. In Hanami Koji, players are working to gain the favor of the seven geishas by collecting their favorite performance item, in this case, cards that match the geisha's symbol. The seven geisha cards are displayed in between the two players, and this is where most of the gaming occurs as cards are placed above or below each geisha based on which player plays them. Each geisha card has a number on the top left of the card, which indicates their charm points and equals the number of matching item cards for that person. The geishas range from 2 to 5 charm points. Hanami Koji is played over 3 rounds. One item card is randomly removed at the start of each round. Players begin a round with a hand of 6 item cards, and on their turn, they draw an item card from the deck and spend one of their actions playing cards from their hand. For those actions, there are exactly 4 of them. 
and each player gets the same set to be used in any order on their turn. The four actions are represented by cardboard tiles, and if a player uses that action during the round, they flip it over to the non-colored side. So what are these actions? The first one is choosing one card from your hand and placing it face down in front of you. This card remains a secret and will be scored at the end of the round and go toward that Geisha's charm points. The second action is choosing two cards from your hand and placing them face down in front of you, and these cards will not be scored during this round. The third action is choosing three cards from your hand and placing them face up in front of you. Your opponent then selects one of these three cards to place in front of the Geisha on their side, and you get to place the other two cards in front of a Geisha on your side of the table. The fourth action is selecting four cards from your hand and placing them in two piles of two cards each face up. Your opponent then selects one set of the cards to place underneath the corresponding geisha, and you take the other ones to place in front of your geisha. Players go back and forth taking one action each until they've exhausted all of their action tokens. Players flip over secret cards at score and count which player the geisha favors based on the number of item cards each player has given them. The victory markers on the geisha card will then move toward the player who gains her favor. Players aim to win over 4 geishas, or 11 or more charm points. If there is no clear victor in the first round, players play until 3 rounds are over. In between rounds, the victory markers do not reset, but instead stay toward the side of the player who carried the geisha's favor from the previous round. If nobody gets the 4 geishas or 11 or more charm points after the 3 rounds, the player with more geishas wins the game. Hanami Koji is so tense. You're initially presented with limited information, but as the round progresses, more and more cards are revealed, but there's still the chance of hidden cards from one of your opponent's saves, or the one that's removed from the game. You also have to make calculated guesses regarding which cards to play, or save for a future action, because you don't want to get cornered into giving your opponent only good options, because those are the only cards left in your hand. Hanami Koji is quick to set up, and easy to learn. It doesn't take up a lot of table space. It plays fairly quickly at 15 to 20 minutes and is compact enough for easy travel for when we all decide to travel again. Lastly, even though the game seems deceptively easy, there's a lot of strategy to explore. In my opinion, it's one of the best I cut you choose game mechanisms where you still feel like you have some sense of control over your destiny instead of being at the complete mercy of the other player. And the lovely artwork is just so pleasing and calming but you're not racking your brain about which cards to play. And that's Hannah Mikoji. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 Pie. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to the 5 Pie, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 by Games. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. <laughs>